Pray together. Father God, you are a God of mercy and kindness. And you are a God who, whose word is meant to be followed. And as we just heard, read and as we've been singing this morning, you are a God worthy of all praise and glory and honor as well as devotion and obedience. And so, Lord, as we open your word together this morning, we ask that you would give us eyes to see what is true about you and about how you have dealt and do deal with both sinful followers and the lost. So help us draw from your word this morning, specifically the book of Jonah, how we can better know you, better glorify you, and better obey you. We pray all of these things in the saving name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, today we're going to start a new series in the Old Testament book of Jonah. And this short, four-chaptered book is part of a section in your Bibles often called the Minor Prophets. They're called that because of the length of each writing and not because they are less important than what some call the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. These prophecies and pronouncements carry the same weight and authority like all other books of our Bibles, both Old and New Testament. But we all know that sometimes they can be confusing and hard to understand little books in our Bibles, and often they're the sticky pages in our Old Testament. And what makes Jonah even more unique than that is that unlike the other prophetic books, it is not primarily a prophecy, but a story about a prophet. We never get the full message of God to the Assyrian people. But what we do see is a sinful, reluctant prophet and a sovereign and merciful God. And we also see salvation given to many unlikely people. So let us look together at chapter 1 this morning. And we begin with verse 1 of chapter 1. And the first thing we see is that it says, The word of the Lord. This phrase was the phrase that, was, that gives a person the qualification of prophet. Only the prophets heard the word of the Lord. So right away we see that this writing involves the Lord and the word given to a prophet. And next we see who that prophet is. It is Jonah. Here we get the full, his full name of the prophet in his writing. And now obviously we know from the title of the book in our Bibles who, the, who it is. But it's good to just remember that we title the books of our Bible based on what we find in the text. So with many of the other prophets in the minor prophet section of your Bible, we, we have a hard time knowing for sure who the author was or maybe when or where they prophesied. But that is not true with Jonah. Actually, we have a historical cross-reference to help kind of get our, our bearings with, with when this letter was written or this, this prophecy. Or I'm call, I vacillate between calling it a letter and a prophecy. It's not really a letter. It's not really a prophecy. It's a story about a prophet. So I might use those phrases interchangeably uh, this morning. But turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 14. We can see the other mention of this Jonah in the Old Testament. So 2 Kings 14, verse 23, is where the section starts. And so just to remind ourselves, 2 Kings is the time of the kingdom of Israel as they have now been separated after the time of Solomon. So we now have a northern Israel and a southern Judah. So we have two separate kingdoms, both uh, made up of primarily the ethnic Israel. 
And we all remember, if we've read these chapters and books in a, in a recent time, that Israel never really figured it out after they left. But in verse 23, it says, In the 15th year of Amazah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Verse 25 says this, He restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the sea of the Arabath, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, Jonah, the son of Amada, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. So we see that Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel during the time about, if I'm guessing, probably less than 50 years from when Assyria will come in and take Israel away. So if you remember, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken away by Assyria uh, generations before Judah was finally taken by the Babylons, and we have that great uh, Jewish exile, as they call it, in those letters. So, so Jonah is kind of floating as a prophet within the northern kingdom, the kingdom that's wandered far from God and is really the, the, the taking of this kingdom by force from a foreign country is, is really within decades, a generation maybe, of being, being taken. And what's interesting, though we won't get to it this week, but when, as, we, as the, the letter develops, we see that he's actually going to speak and, and preach a message of repentance and salvation to the nation that will eventually come and take Israel captive. So it's interesting. So we, we can match the office of the prophet, and we can see a specific name for Jonah both in both books. So we are not so blessed to have this with other prophets, but here we can see he was a prophet in Israel and not Judah, as we said. But we also see that the Jonah was a bona fide prophet of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And this letter that he wrote, this, this retrospective that he writes about his life and his time in the big fish and all the things that he has done, we see that this wasn't his first word of the Lord that had come to him. He had had experience as a prophet. But now we see what uh, makes for the events of this writing is what Jonah actually doesn't do. God says to him in verse 2 back in Jonah chapter 1, he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The message is an interesting one. First, the call to go to Assyria's capital and give a message to a pagan people that, was, that their sin and their evil had come up to notice of God. This is not to say that God was unaware of the sin up until this point, but it's more of the idea that God is pronouncing judgment and his mouthpiece is meant to go up and deliver the message. So he's saying, your time has come. It is time to address this. So to, to say that this would feel like losing the home field advantage is an understatement for Jonah. It was not common for the prophets of Israel or the prophets of Judah to leave the nation to do their messaging. For example, the previous book in your Bible, Obadiah, is a vision of the pro- that the prophet gave about Edom. But unlike Jonah, he was not called to go to Edom, but he prophesied about Edom in the Jewish writings. So Obadiah gets to give the message without going to the kingdom. Jonah has a message to give, and he is called to go to Assyria, Nineveh specifically. 
Now, the case with Jonah was that he was supposed to take a show on the road. He was supposed to go. And go on the road he did, but it was in the opposite direction. Verse 3 says, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So instead of listening and obeying God's command, Jonah chose to hop a ship and go literally in the opposite direction of where he was called to go. By some accounts, Nineveh was somewhere around 70 miles by foot away from Israel to the north. Tarshish was probably in Spain. It was, a, it was by boat only from Israel. Joppa is a seaport town in Samaria, and it was a hub of boat activity. What's interesting is just like, in, just like Jonah has a cross-reference in the Old Testament, so does Tarshish. You don't have to turn there. But in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 22, when it talks about Solomon's reign, it says, The king, that is Solomon, had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come, bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. So during the reign of King Solomon, this far away, obviously exotic place, brought in some amazing gifts. So if you're running from the presence of the Lord, this is probably as good a place as any. This brings us to the phrase that is referenced twice in these verses, the presence of the Lord. And just notice how, how, how Jonah writes. He, he references the presence of the Lord twice. He references Tarshish three times. He's making this, he's repeating it, and the author is making clear to us what and why Jonah was doing what he was doing. This wasn't a vacation. This wasn't the scenic route, and this wasn't a pit stop while on the way to following God. This was Jonah walking away from his duty as a prophet, and he was disobeying the command and call of God. And what an amazing thing to think about. We don't know for sure how God communicated to the prophets, and we, we never get a playbook to see how he accomplishes this idea of, of, of giving them the word of the Lord. It could have been audible. It might not have been. But either way, it was clear, and the understanding of what was needed to be done was without a doubt. So Jonah heard this word of the Lord, and chose to do the opposite. He knew what to do, and he had a call to follow. In his sinful reluctance, he chose to go to the other end of the world. So two additional observations here is that first, we don't know why he did this at this point in the letter. Uh, Spoiler alert, we'll get some insight later in the book. But for now, we have to take the story in real time as it unfolds. So we see somewhat, he mysteriously is cutting bait and running, and we don't know why. And we could speculate, but Jonah doesn't disclose it at this point. So we allow this question to build in our minds and build, build, build and stir up in us just questions of why. Why would he do this? Which, which brings us to the second phrase, the presence of the Lord. Did Jonah think that God was confined just to the temple or just to the physical address of Israel? I don't think so. The Old Testament was clear that, that God wasn't confined to the temple. And if you'd like to turn with me to uh, Psalm 139, I can give you kind of what my thinking there was. Psalm 139 is uh, a great, just a great psalm that, that I think we often quote, but, but there's a line and a couple of verses that we see that we, sometimes we miss when we read uh, verse 139, or chapter 139 of Psalm, I'm sorry, Psalm 139, goodness. 
Um, let's just start over in um, verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light is about me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So the psalmist David is writing, where could I go? Where could I possibly go and, and lose you? And so David was before Jonah. Jonah was a prophet. Obviously, Jonah would have been aware of the writings of the Psalms. Jonah knew this. So we don't believe that he was running because he thought, well, if God can't see me from the temple, I'm good. Sinclair Ferguson said this, What then does Jonah mean by telling us that he ran from God's presence? He was not fleeing from his omnipresence, meaning his presence everywhere. He was fleeing from his felt presence. From the place and time God had promised to make himself known in grace and power. He was fleeing from the place of prayer and service. He was fleeing from the sphere of evangelism to which God was calling him. In his panic, he endeavored to go as far away as he could from that spot on the map where God had written the name Jonah. So he got on a boat with, which was bound for Tarshish in Spain. Surely there he could push to the back of his mind the haunting pressures of that word from God which had spoken with such authority to his conscience. Go to Nineveh. And to Nineveh he did not. And this is where the introduction of the book ends. The scene is set. We have a call and a retreat. And we find ourselves with Jonah on a boat on the way to the other end of the world. But God's work with Jonah doesn't end here. It is just beginning. So Jonah is now on the run. But now we see God's hand move in amazing way to start to work on this wandering prophet. The God of heaven and earth sovereignly steps in, and as it says in verse 4, hurls a great wind upon the sea. It also says there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was threatened to break up. Again, Jonah wants us to understand the theological underpinning of the storm at sea. Remember, when you read a narrative, you read a book of the Bible that is a story, it is not just a story, and it is not just history, though it is both of those things. It is a great story, and it is accurate history, but the author is making theological statements, and this is what we should be on the lookout for when we read books of the Bible like this, and we see one of those here. God took direct dominion over his creation and pitched that's literally what the word means, pitched a supernaturally strong storm on the sea and on a collision course with the boat destined for Tarshish. It was so strong, it accomplished two things in verse 5. One, it threatened to break the ship in half, and two, it struck fear into the grizzled mariners. In doing these two things, the mariners took Two actions. First, in verse 5, it says the mariners were afraid. So what did they do? They cried out to each of his own gods, and they hurled the cargo from the ship into the sea to lighten the load. So we have many different peoples 
We have many different gods, and it would seem we have no other Jews aboard this vessel. At this point, no one is calling out to Yahweh, the God of Israel. But the men are trying everything they can. Deeply ingrained in each man is a deep connection to the spiritual in our times of deepest need. And this is no different. These men, who we would assume have been through countless storms, and they knew weather patterns. The crew knew what they had signed up for. And they were ready with the resolve to take the cargo, endure the sea, and get paid on the other end. That's what boatmen do. But this plan is unraveling. Everyone's plan is unraveling, but God's. The mariner's plan is unraveling. They think the ship is going to break. And so what do they do? They throw the cargo out. This is the money. This is the purpose. This is the goal of being on the sea for these men. But the situation is so dire, they are willing to part with profit for their own lives. If they survive, they survive with no profit. The hope is that they will lose their money and not lose their lives. Not the plan that they thought they were signing up for on this voyage. So it feels like utter pandemonium on the deck. It just, to me, it seems like the waves are crashing over, people are chucking away money, and people are praying to whoever they can find. It's pandemonium. What's Jonah doing? Well, we find out that the, uh, the, the captain, in verse 6, comes down and says to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Is he, I mean, what? He's asking what we're all thinking at this point. What are you doing? How can you be sleeping at a time like this? Can't you tell we're breaking apart? We need all hands on deck. But in all this chaos, we get another subtle theological point tucked away at the end of verse 6. After rousting Jonah from what is a deep sleep, the captain says, Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So do you see it? Though this captain doesn't know the true God, he understands his place in the world. And knows that the right God can save his life if that God so chooses. So Jonah is being corrected by a pagan in the bottom of a boat that is breaking up halfway on the way to nowhere. This captain doesn't have the word of the Lord like Jonah had. But this man better understands God's character and takes it more seriously and with more reverence than the prophet. It's a turn of, it's a turn of play. It's a turn of, of, of roles. The roles are reversed. And I'm not saying that the captain is a worshiper of God yet. That will actually come soon. But he is definitely going in the direction of God as Jonah is trying to run from him. God's sovereign hand is stirring all of this up and his purposes are many and various. He's not just correcting the path of a prophet who deserves it. He's also striking down pagan idol worship. God is doing a twofold work of mercy, bringing a wayward son back and bringing pagans into worship of his great name. And let's just see how it continues. God is revealing to us that his sovereign plans will come to pass and our sinful actions are not able to negate what his will is for us. But he works through our sinful actions masterfully to bring himself glory and to do what is best for us, including the running prophet and including lost pagan boatsman. Now in verses 7 through 11, we continue to see the situation spiral more out of control. Now that Jonah is on deck, 
and rubbing the sleep out of his eyes, the mariners decide that they should, as it says in verse 7, cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. It says in verse 7, they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Now time doesn't allow for us to do a deep dive on casting lots, but this was not just a pagan practice, but it was something that was used by the Israelites and God throughout their history. It was used to divide the land of Joshua in the book of Joshua. And it was used all the way up to Acts chapter 1 as the apostles used the casting of lots to find a replacement for Judas Iscariot. So Israel has a long history of casting lots. And actually Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So God will sovereignly use the lot at this point, the casting of lots, to point to Jonah. And what comes next are some of what I feel are some of the most hollow words ever spoken by a prophet. He says in verse 8, which a funny sidebar, verse 8 says, Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they said whoever, they started in verse 7, whoever the, the, the lot lands on, that's the bad guy. It lands on Jonah and they say, tell us who's the bad guy. Which I think is so, it's just funny. They, they were unwilling to accept that this guy's the guy while we're having all the problem. But then he comes up and he says, they said, well, who are you? He says in verse 9, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, okay, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? So they hear the truth claims about his God and they say, we must be in for it because whatever you did, we've got this. We've got this storm. You said your God is the one who made the sea and the dry land. Well, it's obviously he's controlling it because this is supernatural, the storm that we're dealing with. So they're afraid. They're concerned. And they're like, what do we do? And they said, what have you done? Right, this is still in verse 10. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So Jonah lays it all out and he says, my God is the God who owns all of this and I'm running from him and that's what you got. A storm like you've never seen. And they're freaking out. I'd be freaking out. Everybody's freaking out. Verse 11 says, they said to him, well, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? So now that all of the, 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 the cards or lots are on the table, we're going to see now, how does everyone respond to this? How, how does Jonah respond? And how do the seamen respond? Starting in, in the second half of verse 11 and asking what should be done, we get another editorial comment by the author, which is Jonah in retrospect. It says, the second half of verse 11, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. So what we're seeing as the story is, is continuing to go on, the, the danger is continuing to ramp up. It, so they said in verse 4 that it already felt like the ship was broken. So it feels like disaster is imminent. The destruction of ship The ship is minutes away. And Jonah gives the first response. And he says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, which is, again, a fun wordplay, right? God hurls the storm. He says, hurl me into the storm. And then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So Jonah's answer is simple. Send me in. In Jonah's eyes, his fate will be death. And he should be swallowed up by the sea to appease God's wrath. 
And again here, what's so interesting about this, this, this story is that we get no internal dialogue from Jonah at this point. We don't know for sure what he's thinking or how he's thinking about his fate. Does he think he's going to die? Does he think God's going to spare? We don't know. He, doesn't, he gives us no editorial comments about what is going on between his ears. And I don't, think, I don't know that God even revealed to him that he'd be spared in the ocean. He just doesn't tell us. So Jonah's story of salvation will continue into chapter 2, and we'll see that. But now comes the surprising salvation of chapter 1. And unlike Jonah, whose motivations and thoughts are far more ambiguous in chapter 1, we know exactly what's going on with these mariners. Their response to Jonah's request to being hurled into the sea is to row harder and try to get out of it. Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. Literally meaning dig in. So they're trying to dig in with the oars and get back to dry land. But they couldn't, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So again, it's growing and it's building and they're rowing harder. They dig in with their oars. They try to get to work. They're beginning to realize that the God of Jonah was the one true God. And the implications of that to them was that they, they couldn't take his life, what would happen to them? Their thoughts are, this God can obviously get things done. If we throw this guy into the sea, what does that mean for us? So they value Jonah's life, and they're starting to value Jonah's God. But they couldn't get it done. They, they try to get back to dry land. The sea grows more and more tempestuous against them, so it becomes clear. God doesn't want this boat back on land, and Jonah can't be in it anymore. So what do these pagan, idolatrous boatmen do? Interesting. They call out to the Lord in verse 14. Look at this. Verse 14. They called out to the Lord. Oh, Lord. And when you see it all caps, oh, Lord, that, that's the word Yahweh, which is, which is the, the, the term for Israel's God. So now they're turning to this God who none of them knew maybe 20 minutes ago. Now they're all saying, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God, and all of that, what that name endures. Let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood. So they're saying, we're about to throw this guy into the water, but please don't cause us to die or don't lay on us innocent blood. For you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they're saying, God, we recognize you as the one sovereign, true Lord of all things. You are the God who is real and the God who has made heaven and earth. Please don't cause us to pay for the sins of this man. Have mercy on us. Don't make us pay. That confession is, is really telling, isn't it? It's interesting to see how far they've come from each one randomly throwing out prayers to any God they can find to now saying, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Please don't cause us to take this, this man's blood on our hands. But, but it happens, not the blood part, but the throwing of him into the sea happens in verse 15. Jonah goes overboard. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from, rage, from raging. And that will pick up at the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 what is probably the most famous aspect of Jonah's story, his three days and three nights in the great fish. But what we don't want to miss is verse 16 of chapter 1. What do these men do once the sea returns to normal? Do they go after the cargo? Do they try to save the money? Do they thank their gods for getting them out? 
No. Verse 16 says, Then the men feared the Lord. Again, they feared Yahweh exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So what do they do? They worship. These pagans were brought to worship Yahweh, the God of the reluctant prophet, with a terrible witness, and he was running from his call, yet in God's sovereign plan, he firmly accomplished everything he was, and God used that man, his creation, and the power of his might to bring these unlikely converts to the throne room of grace on a boat off the coast of Joppa in a storm like they had never seen. What a God. What power, and what a great story to see these hardened, idolatrous men become exceedingly afraid and then exceedingly worshipful of the one true God. And that's chapter 1. That's the story of Jonah chapter 1. And now that we have seen some of the theological points that have been presented to us from this chapter, how do we take this great story with all of its theological touch points and how do we make it more to us than just an entertaining read, even though I think it's, an enjoy- it's, a, fan- it's a phenomenal story. I came up with three applications that I think we can make from Jonah chapter 1. I'm sure there are more, but I have three, and they all end with the, or they all start with the, the letter S, so maybe they'll help you remind. I'm not an alliteration guy, but it happened by accident this week. The three points of application would be man sins, God is sovereign, and God saves. So first, man sins. Jonah was running from God, and he disobeyed a direct word from the Lord. But if we look at this and just see this as, a, as unique to the prophets, we miss a major point of application from the story of Jonah. Do we not also have a direct word from the Lord found in his Bible? When we know God's word and we choose to do otherwise, we are just like Jonah. We cannot play the part of narrator or innocent observer, but if we're trying to insert ourselves into this story, it is as Jonah and no one else. We cannot outrun God, just like Jonah could not outrun God. So we should do two things. Know the word of the Lord and obey it. We cannot have one without the other. So let us dig into the text of Scripture to obey our Father and live not as the wandering prophet Jonah, but as those who are obedient to the call of God. Second, God is sovereign. Now, maybe you think that I bang that drum a lot, and it would seem over the past month that I've been with you here on Sunday mornings, we've seen multiple texts that illustrate this point. But it's such a, a large doctrine, such a large truth, that it, is, it finds itself on so many pages of Scripture. And you see, the book of Jonah is actually about God. When what we learn from this book is who God is and how he works. But what we see in Jonah 1 is that we have a God who does not let his plan be thwarted by the sinful actions of men. He didn't allow Jonah to get away with disobedience. On top of that, he took drastic measures, at least in the eyes of those of us who are creatures looking at the creator. He took drastic measures to put Jonah back on the right path. And God used the free will choices of Jonah's rebellion to bring many mighty works to pass. The works that we've seen in this chapter, in chapter 1, were the salvation of pagan mariners. And at the end of chapter 2, he will save Jonah. And in chapters 3 and 4, he's going to save or, or relent from judging the Assyrian people. All of this began with the prophet acting contrary to the revealed word of God. 
But this should also instruct us that just because God works through providential acts, we shouldn't willingly disobey God. The message of Jonah is not, do whatever you want, God will work it out. It is a sinful shame that Jonah disobeyed. But the merciful character of God intervenes through his good hand of providence to straighten crooked paths and to save lost souls. So let's hold both sides of this equation together. Let us know and obey God's word fully the first time. But know that even when we sin, when we stumble, when we fall away, God is faithful by his merciful character to bring us back through the means of his sovereign works. God does whatever he pleases. And he is pleased to bring wandering prophets and wandering children back home. And finally, God saves This is the truth that can often get lost in the message of Jonah, but it's really the undercurrent and the theme within the whole book. Here in the first chapter, we see some surprising converts. These pagan, international, multi-God-loving boatsmen find themselves in a supernatural event that causes them to turn to the true God in devotion and worship Him. What an amazing byproduct of what all began with the sinful prophet's act of disobedience. This shows us a major lesson within our own work as evangelists, doesn't it? If God's mercy and God's work through the Holy Spirit saves people, it is God's work and God's mercy through the Holy Spirit that saves people, not our witness or our words, ultimately. What I mean is not to say that your witness and the words you use are not important. They're vitally important. We need to know the biblical truth claims that instruct the sinner and, and how we live does matter too. What I'm trying to say is that even if you stumble and falter, God still saves. Your presentation doesn't have to be perfect and your life definitely won't be. But God, because of his character and his mercy, will be pleased to save unlikely converts in spite of ourselves. So don't jump from a perfection ditch, ditch saying, I'm not going to do anything till my words are perfect and my life is perfect. You can't go there. And don't jump into a ditch that says, well, I'm just going to let go and let God. I don't care about God's word. I don't need to know it. I don't care how I live. I don't care how people see me. Neither of those things is accurate. But ultimately, take your eyes off yourself. Put them on God and a love for the lost. And your evangelism and your life will be used effectively by the God of the universe. So let's get over ourselves. And more importantly, let's never get over the goodness and mercy of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we close, we have to take inventory of our lives. Are we wandering believers, not following God's revealed word? Let us turn and repent and come back home. Or are you here this morning and is the Holy Spirit revealing to you that you're more like the men in the boat? Are you realizing that you are a sinner who has never wandered from the faith because you have no faith in Christ Jesus? If this is you, know that Jesus Christ has paid the cost for your sins and he has done that by his life, death, and resurrection. His returning and conquering of death proves that God accepted his payment for our sin. And for all of those who would put their trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ, those will be saved. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you too will be saved. Let's pray. Oh, God of mercy. Oh, God of sovereign control. Thank you that you do hold the earth in the palm of your hand. And that as your word says, just as your hands are over the streams, so do you hold over the 
the, the heart of the king. God, you mold us and you shape us and you fasten us to your great name. And you make us into the image of your son through your sovereign acts, through showing us how to navigate this life. God, as we look at the book of Jonah this morning and we see a prophet, a follower of you who was not following you, God, too often we can see ourselves in the same boat. So remind us and stir us again this morning that let us draw near to God, draw near to you through Christ, and that you would, you would make our paths straight. Proverbs 3 says, trust in you with all of our heart and you will make even our paths straight. So cause our feet to go in the direction of you. Cause our lives to go in the direction of you and give us the grace we need in all things. God, we also ask for anyone here this morning that might be like the, the lost boatsmen, that they would be those who are, who are looking at this great God, these great words, this great text, this great morning, and saying, I need you. May you stir their hearts and open their eyes to the truth that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to you but through him. So thank you for your word. Thank you for your, your multifaceted word, the way you teach us through letter and through story that you can teach us through the life of this reluctant prophet how we can better draw near to you and be more made and molded, molded into the image of Christ. Thank you that Christ came and was the better Jonah, that he was the better sacrifice, he was the better three days lost, he was the better everything. Thank you that Jonah, Jonah ultimately points us to your son, Christ Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' saving name. Amen. <laughs>